District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This is your host, Gabriella Hoffman. You're in for a treat today. I'm going to be releasing the full-length conversations I had with three gentlemen I spoke to for my fifth installment of Conservation Nation, my video series with CFACT, here on the podcast Back in April, in episode 164, I teased a little bit of this, but now you're going to get the full comprehensive thing. Hooray! I got to really learn a lot about Florida's greater Everglades system, see beyond kind of the headlines, see beyond kind of the portrayals and the advocacy, and get to really know that ecosystem in just the short amount of time I spent there during the week of my birthday back in March. So you'll learn about aquaculture and kind of how all these different stakeholders work together to combat noxious weeds and invasive plants to repurpose that for fertilizer and farming. How great is that? Free markets at work. That is so cool. And it's a public-private partnership, and I'm going to let the stakeholders and the founders speak for themselves. You're going to hear specifically from Marshall Jones of Max Fish Camp, who gave us the tour of the Everglades, the glue of all these different conservation stakeholder relationships, Mike Elfenbein, along with our friend Travis Thompson. Michael's awesome. And also you're going to hear from aquaculture creator Nick Sabo. And I will include links to parts one and two and to the previous Florida videos. And you'll find the YouTube video in the show notes. But get excited. This is a great topic. And I think you can be optimistic about free market environmentalism at work through companies and projects like aquaculture and just seeing different stakeholder relations take place. Take a gander and let me know what you think. So Mac, you took us out to the Everglades. You put us on the board for some bass. Talk a little bit about your operation, what you do, services you offer, and why you like doing what you do and and being a gladesman in a nutshell. Well, I was born to be a gladesman. Uh, My family's lived in this house, on this land for five generations. This is the only life I've ever ever known. it is my honor uh, to, to serve the Everglades with integrity and showcase one of God's natural wonders to the general public. And you never know who you're going to meet, and you never know what influence they may have in this world. So it's imperative that throughout my life I'm able to have that impact on indiv- individuals where they can go back to wherever they came from and, and share that impression of the Everglades with whoever they, you know, their cohorts are. And specifically, what do your boat? What do you offer in your boat tours? You offer bass fishing. You give tours. So talk about that in a nutshell. What exactly you offer and what people can expect from booking a trip with you? So we do strictly private airboat tours, mm-hmm. uh, which are uh, highly eco tourism uh, friendly because they're very educational. And we offer bass fishing guide service also on the airboats. Um, we cover a 130,000 acre parcel of the River of Grass, which is Wildlife Conservation Area 3B. And um, depending on the months of the year and what the water depths are, um, that will be what determines how much wildlife we see and how good a quality of the fishing is. Uh, That being said, uh, it's a very unique experience. You won't find anything like it anywhere else. Talk about what gladesmen are more specifically. You guys are kind of like swamp cowboys. And what about the Everglades you want people to discover? Uh, Kind of that it's not just a swamp, but it's actually more than that. It's a vibrant thriving ecosystem so yeah the everglades there's this there's this misnomer that the everglades is a swamp and there are small regions of the everglades which are cypress swamp but the vast majority of the everglades is the river of grass which is a uh, wide flowing watershed Mm -hmm. very slow flowing 
Um, Gladesmen are individuals such as myself and my family that have eked out an existence throughout this region for multiple generations. Um, we, we live in harmony with the ecology, with the wildlife. Um, and so as a Gladesman, um, what, what gives us that characteristic, I guess you could say, what, what brands us as a Gladesman? Um, in modern day, the definition has changed substantially from what it used to be. Um, but we still um, eke out an existence from the landscape and from the ecology and, and the wildlife. That being said, um, you know, early gladesmen were typically trappers, mm -hmm. hunters, poachers, and moonshiners. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in, in more modern times, those, that skill set has led us to being able to traverse this landscape better than anybody else, know it like the back of our hands, and be able to discuss the different aspects of the ecology, the impacts of, of modern changes due to um, industrialization of the surrounding areas. And uh, we're able to share that with, with people through a unique perspective that they won't find somewhere else at a commercialized tourism place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we noticed that throughout during the tours. You showed us a little, little different areas. Every, I think, of the four or five different places you took us, it was so unique and different. And you got to see different branches and different caveats of the Everglades. And if people want to have fun, kind of get a personalized tour of the Everglades, how can they book a trip with you? And what, what advice would you have for those interested in learning more about the Everglades? You know, do your due diligence. Um, what we offer is the best, the best in the business, and not just because I'm the owner, it's because it's the most authentic. Um, that being said, um, you know, gladesmanculture.com is our website, and we are Max Fish Camp, M-A-C-K apostrophe S, Max Fish Camp. Um, we're, you know, just as authentic as it gets, five-generation mom-and-pop business. If you want to support American, want to support local, look us up. Um, you know, what we do is unique, and you won't find much that's comparable out there in South Florida. I think that's good. Awesome. Thank you. All right, Gabby, go for it. All right, Mike, why don't you introduce yourself and talk about why you're involved in promoting aquaculture? Absolutely. Thanks, Gabby. Uh, my name is Mike Elfenbein. I am a resident of Florida. I was born and raised in Miami. I live on the West Coast now, and uh, I hunt and fish and um, appreciate what it takes to be able to continue to do that for the rest of my life and for my children and my children after that. And I've always been uh, very much engaged in conservation efforts across the state. And um, uh, this opportunity just kind of hit me in the side of the head. Um, I got a phone call one day from a congressman's office in Gainesville, uh, Congressman Yoho. I spoke with Jessica Norfleet there, and she explained to me that there was a doctor at the University of Florida named Dan Canfield that was working on a project uh, for the St. John's River. They have similar issues in the St. John's like we have down here in South Florida and Lake Okeechobee. Um, and they explained that um, there was an opportunity to use the technology that they were going to apply to the St. John's to Lake Okeechobee to uh, resolve the same issues that we have with nutrient loads and blue-green algae blooms and uh, water quality issues. And uh, I kind of, I was, I, I was taken aback. It was nice to get the call, but I, I kind of just shrugged my shoulders and said, I don't, I don't understand why you think that I should do this, but... Uh, they insisted that they thought that my voice would carry. Um, they connected me with Dr. Canfield, and 
Dr. Canfield and I also wondered why they did that. Um, and eventually they connect me with Nick Sabo and uh, he explained that um, he had a solution to some of our problems and uh, that he had a hard time getting um, elected officials to act on what he had. Uh, there was a communication gap and I guess that was my purpose was to fill that gap. And uh, so I, I reached out to FWC, which I have a great relationship with. They're an amazing agency with fantastic leadership and exceptional staff uh, that do a great job. And, uh, you know, we all know that they've been trying to find solutions to some of these problems, too. Um, and I spoke with the director there, uh, Eric Sutton, and explained to him what I explained to you about the congressman and uh, the doctor at University of Florida. And he said, you know, Mike, we'll, we'll, we'll listen to anything right now. We're really desperate to find solutions. And um, he suggested that we have a meeting with his uh, senior leadership, his, his directors, and kind of explain to them what we were thinking about and to see whether it was viable or not. And uh, we did that. We had a Zoom call. Uh, Nick was there. Uh, some other folks that you've met were also there. We had the staff and commissioners from FWC present, and um, they liked it. They thought it had some merit, um, and they wanted to kind of expand on that and see how viable it would be. Um, and eventually what we ended up doing was doing that same process throughout the different agencies. Uh, we presented the information to DEP, the Department of Environmental Protection. Uh, we presented it to FDAX, the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Uh, we went through the South Florida Water Management District. Uh, we included the Army Corps of Engineers and staff from the Department of Interior, knowing that this would have implications on Everglades restoration initiatives. Um, and everybody, uh, not everybody, there was some hesitation. I think there's a lot of people who don't deal with change well, um, especially when it's something that hasn't really been proven and they couldn't put their hands on. Um, but they all seemed to think that there was a chance that this could work. Um, a few weeks later, months go by and time passes and we continue to work at this and try to make it a reality. Um, and we get a call explaining that there's a DEP grant coming available uh, specifically to look for new technologies that address our water quality issues, our chemical spraying issues, our harmful algal bloom issues. Um, and they suggested that we apply for it. Uh, the grant was a $5 million grant. Um, we applied. Um, I've learned throughout the last many months that there are different things in government that kind of preclude you from just going out and doing something. Um, so we had to uh, adhere to the process and to take the steps that were necessary to be official and accomplish our goals and be able to move it forward. Um, we were told that there was budget constraints. I've, I've now learned that uh, the federal government's fiscal year and the state government's fiscal year do not coincide. Um, and that agencies can only spend what's allocated to them. So we had some limitations on the ability to use that grant money, which resulted in us applying for a smaller amount of money. Um, instead of the entire $5 million, um, we've been awarded a $500,000 grant uh, from the DEP through FWC. And then the Army Corps of Engineers has uh, contributed an in-kind contribution um, with a value of almost the same amount that the uh, FWC is, maybe a little bit more. So essentially we've raised just over a million dollars. 
Um, the Army Corps is going to provide, the Army Corps is phenomenal. I have to make sure I tell you guys that. Uh, the Colonel and the Lieutenant Colonel, uh, John Lane and the staff at the Army Corps are second to none. Um, it's been amazing working with them. Uh, they really care. The people there are interested in finding solutions to our problems. Um, and what people don't realize in society is that you can't just flip a switch and fix it. The process is long, it's arduous. Um, there are many bureaucratic steps that have to be taken to get there. But the people at these agencies care and they're doing everything they can to get us there. Uh, the Army Corps has committed their equipment to this project, uh, barges, tugs, um, pumps. Uh, they've been phenomenal. Um, they see this levee that you have here in front of you that goes around the entire lake. They see a purpose t uh, with this project to keep from spending taxpayer dollars on erosion issues that these dikes are experiencing, not just here, but across the country. So we have an ability to not only clean up the lake, remove nutrients, reduce chemical spraying, um, provide clean water, um, restore the landscape, but we also have an ability to save taxpayer dollars on things that they're spending them on that we have a solution for. Um, so yeah, in the beginning there might be um, a, a sticker shock um, from what it takes to implement this initially and to set it up, but as time goes on, we're only going to improve upon the landscape. Um, we'll be able to make things more productive for the agriculture community in restoring those nutrients to the earth that have been degraded over time. Uh, this levee that we're standing on and this canal have stopped the natural process from occurring. Um, typically what would have happened in the wet season is all of the material coming from the lake would have followed the water line all the way up onto the landscape. As the water receded, that material would have stayed there. And as it decomposed, it created the soils, the rich soils that made agriculture and farming operations around the lake so viable for so many years. So as time's gone on, this landscape has been degraded. Um, those nutrients have escaped us. Um, and we are essentially going to restore that natural system that occurred for many millennia ahead of us being here and interrupting that um, and, and kind of putting agriculture back into its rightful place as a part of the solution um, and not this perception that it's part of the problem. Um, that land over there, that agricultural land that we're looking at is the last buffer between our natural world and this urban sprawl that's occurring across our state. So if we can find a way to make ranch lands and ag lands more productive, we can keep those natural habitats and uh, improved or unimproved pastures as, as a place for wildlife to exist, right? A place for rainwater to recharge our aquifers. Um, there's so many benefits to that. So if we can make a rancher's land more productive for that rancher to ensure that they don't have to sell it to a developer, um, it's a win-win for our e ecosystem and for our people, for our drinking water, um, and of course, our, our food supply, right? We can keep our food supply here, local. Uh, we can continue to buy from local farmers and producers and ensuring that our communities remain whole and intact. Good.
and talk about why you developed aquaculture and what went into the process. Sure, sure. Um, well, I started quite a few years ago. Uh, my background is agriculture. Um, always been uh, a farm boy. And um, years ago, we started managing phosphorus from large farms. And we would take the massive amounts of phosphorus and apply it to grassland, farmland at agronomic rates. And what would happen is you'd see the grass and the land respond in a very positive way. And so um, years ago, back in the late 70s, NASA took uh, water hyacinths and they cleaned up their sewage lagoon in one week with water hyacinths. And I remember this from when I was a kid because I recognized the equipment that they used to chop it up. So that got me excited, right? Um, so for years now, we've been growing water hyacinths in different types of waste, whether it be pig manure, human waste, cow manure, chicken manure. We've, we've done all the manures. <laughs> and um, water hyacinths really responds to the point where you'll take dirty water and make it look like clean drinking water. Like, you could put your hand when it's, when it's fresh and you won't see your fingers a couple inches deep. But after the plants do what they're meant to do, they suck everything out of the water. You're just left with clean water. That's the byproduct of their action. And so we're always looking for compost and different uh, natural products to put on land. And when, we, when I first came down to Florida... I didn't realize that there was such a, an issue with uh, aquatic invasive species, water hyacinths, uh, uh, hydrilla, and it just it grows and grows and grows. And of course, because we've got 21 million plus people, I think, in the state now, and so you've got all this human activity, whether it be construction, whether it be sewage treatment releases, whatever the case may be, septic systems. It's all all of the above, right? Rainwater. Um, these plants are flourishing. And so we came down with the idea, well, well, why don't we take those plants, harvest them, and put them back on the land where they came from, right? Pretty simple. And, and so it's just a matter of developing equipment that can do that efficiently. And there's, there's people out there that harvest now. The problem with, with uh, standard aquatic harvesters is that they're just slow. They, they just, it, you know, imagine going two, three miles out on the lake, harvesting... A, a, a truckload of weeds and driving that harvester all the way back to shore, right? At three miles an hour. You're not gonna get much done when you've got 10,000 acres. So, so in agriculture, we'll harvest 100 acres, 200 acres of corn in a day. So, well, why can't we do that on a lake? And the answer is you can. It's just, uh, it's just a matter of technology. You know, we, we say we, we made it to the moon why can't we clean up this little mud puddle? Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of the thought process. So um, we came down and just, just started slow and we started aligning ourselves with the right people, amazing people. There's a lot of amazing people in this state and, and they're right here from all walks of life, whether they're hunters, anglers, clean water activists, ranchers. And, and when you have a project where everybody wins, you can have success. As soon as there's one loser, it, it, it doesn't have a future. So we looked at this years ago. It's like, okay, who's the losers? We can't find anybody. We've talked to the top fishermen. They say, don't touch the weeds. I'm like, okay, 
well, they're going to either spray them or take them out one way or another. So if you had a choice, how would you do it? They're like, oh, well, make edges. What do you mean make edges? Well, just, just, just harvest pass. And that way the, you don't kill all the fish food and the fish have a place to eat. Bass don't like to swim through their weeds. They like to sit there and wade along the edges and when a little crawfish sticks its head out, they grab it. I'm like, oh, well, that's easy to do. And they're just eating it up because they used to have 13-pound fish here all day long. Now it's hard to get a 13-pounder for the average fisherman. They're 10-pounders. Well, what happened? Well, they ran out of food. Why don't they have food? Well, because when you spray weeds, you kill the fish food, and then that fish, then the, the weeds turn into muck on the bottom, then the weeds can't grow, and it just the cycle perpetuates. And, and so, so we're looking at two things. One, removing muck off the bottom, which is mostly dead plant material. And two, harvesting invasive undesirables that are floating on the surface. And so we've talked to FWC, great people at FWC, and they have, they have been great. Uh, uh, University of Florida, uh, United States Army Corps. And so we came to them with just a very simple, basic, proven technology. We managed to get a patent on two patents now. One's patent pending, but we have one full-fledged patent. Um, which is, uh, yeah, kind of exciting. Well, here you go. There's, uh, there's an example of, of water hyacinths, right? So they call these big ones, this is like bull hyacinths. They get really big and thick. Mm -hmm. And these guys can have roots on them that go down two feet. So you imagine this gets so thick you can almost walk across it. So the reason FWC and Army Corps, they, these are an invasive because these can double in size every week especially if there's a right temperature and, uh, and enough nutrients in the water. This, imagine this just doubling in size. Talk about compounding. And so when you get 10,000 acres of this stuff flowing towards the exit point of a lake, you're going to have a problem. So the Army Corps is concerned with structures, uh, discharges from the lake, entranceways, etc. Um, FWC, of course, is, is fish habitat. And if you get too much of this, right, some of the leaves will fall off and make muck, but if you spray it, it sinks to the bottom and turns into muck. Well, bass fish spawn on the bottom. And if you've got a foot or two or three or four feet of muck in some cases, well, now the fish got no place to spawn. So they disappear, right? So if you look at these little hair roots, these are like filters as the water flows. Plants suck up everything that's floating in the water and make leaves. So all we're doing is we're taking these plants out, we're, we're juicing them, we literally grind them up in a juicer and put them back on the land. As you'd be surprised, this plant is 95% water. <laughs> it doesn't look like it, does it? No. This is 95% water. Where's all the water? Well, it's stuck inside of these leaves. And so when you, when you press it and you juice it like you would a Vita mixer or, mm -hmm. you know, people have green drinks. I'm not saying drink it, but, they may, you know, um, it actually turns into a really liquidy product. We've, we've done it several times over and over with different pieces of equipment. Mm -hmm. So what we solved is a logistical problem of moving harvested weeds from one location to the other. Right. And so we've aligned ourselves with, with ranchers like Brad Ferris here. This is his ranch. You can see in the background. He's got a couple thousand acres here, and so we're going to juice these and put this, this chopped up material on his land to start building up the compost, right? 
and talk about carbon, these guys suck all kinds of carbon out of the atmosphere and we're putting it back on the land and storing it on the land. So the benefits just just keep climbing for this type of a project. So that's, uh, yeah, that's kind of uh, the elevator pitch in a nutshell. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you're following us on your preferred podcast player. We like to recommend Apple Podcasts because Apple is where most of our listenership hails from. So if you head over to Apple subscribe, comb through some episodes, and leave us reviews. We'd be more than appreciative of your support in that manner. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And you can connect with me personally on my social media feeds. All of the Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram links that I have are all denoted by blue check marks. Really easy to find me. So engage with me there. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to recommend yourself for the show as a prospective guest, I'm all ears to hear and sift through different inquiries. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. Catch you next episode.